When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. Today, we're interviewing Joe Seddon, the founder and CEO of Zero Gravity. Zero Gravity looks to empower students from underprivileged backgrounds to apply for top universities and puts them through a series of mentoring to help them achieve this. Recording live from the buzzy Zero Gravity HQ, we delve into Joe's inspiring journey whilst taking questions from an engaged audience. So you touched upon identity and as someone that's experiencing upward social mobility, do you experience any conflicts in identity or perhaps even guilt? Coming from West Yorkshire, Joe talks about his own challenges around identity. I, th- I think one of the big issues of social mobility is you do run into a bit of an identity crisis. I, I saw this firsthand when I got my offer to study at Oxford University. And I was excited. I knew it was going to be a game changer in my own life. But I also felt a degree of imposter syndrome. Let's join Joe in front of our live audience. Joe, welcome to Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. Great to be on, Jimmy. Tell us where the name Zero Gravity came from. So it's a long story, actually, which was when I founded Zero Gravity, I wanted to come up with a brand's name that really resonated the personal journey I'd been on as a young student. I grew up in a small town in West Yorkshire called Morley, which is between Leeds and Wakefield. It's a post-industrial town, the sort of place where political analysts would refer to as a red wall seat. Mm. Uh, but to me, it was home. And um, I was in a single parent family. My mum was a speech therapist in the NHS. I made the sort of academic, socially mobile journey through state schools to Oxford University. I saw firsthand just how big the barriers were for young people like me. But at the same time, I never thought of myself as a charity case. I was an ambitious young person who wanted to defy the odds. And when I came to create Zero Gravity, and I wanted a name that reflected that journey. I'd been on and I thought gravity was such a good metaphor for all of those barriers, you know, both the real and invisible barriers that sort of prevent ambitious young people from succeeding. And I thought, you know, if we can take those barriers away, that is the most fundamental thing that we're doing as an organization. And that's where the zero gravity name came from. So tell us, when did you first start working on the idea? So I graduated from university in 2018. And when I was at university, I, I had the idea. Now, when I went to Oxford as a student from a small town in West Yorkshire, it was a massive eye-opening experience. And for the first time in my life, you know, I in- interacted with people who were from like very affluent backgrounds, you know, lived in multi-million pound townhouses in West London, had been to private school since the age of three. And I knew I wanted to do something about it. I wanted to level the playing field. I was really inspired about the power of technology 
to make a difference in people's lives. Like my own life had been defined as a young person by technology, whether it was mm. Facebook changing the way I communicated with my friends or Uber changing the way you get around a city or Deliveroo getting you no know, takeaway to your desk in 20 minutes. If we can use technology to solve you no know, huge problems like that and transform sectors, now why can't we use technology to you know, break that link between people's background and what they can achieve? So I, I had the personal experience from my upbringing. I had the kind of motivation having been to a very affluent university to do something about it. And the, the magic I thought of the idea you know, was the power of technology. And that had always been a personal interest of mine because of the way it defined my own uh, lifetime. I remember one of the first questions that I asked you was, how are you going to make sure that you get the uh, sort of disadvantaged kits? And you basically talked me through instantly like all this postcodes and how you're going to map all the postcodes and all of that. Uh, that was a real demonstration of, of the technology. How did it evolve from there? Because I remember that being one of the first steps that you went on. Sure. So one of the big questions is, how do you identify talented people from low opportunity backgrounds when they're still at school. The people don't walk around with a sign on their heads that says, I'm socially mobile, that I'm somebody who is ambitious and talented, but don't necessarily have the resources to succeed. So one of the first things I did when I built Zero Gravity was built an algorithm, which I essentially tried to identify people in the top 15% of talent when you looked at their academic performance in context, but in the bottom 40% of backgrounds. And when we connected that algorithm, directly to the UK state school system. We've got over 500 state schools in the UK who are connected into our platform. Every year when they get their academic results, they feed that data in. And our algorithm takes a look and sort of pinpoints those students who are the people who should be going to the top universities, should be going to the top careers, but might not necessarily get the support to get there. So we want to make sure no one falls through the net. But in terms of actually how you allow people to unlock their potential, it all starts with the individual. The members we have on our platform are defined by their talent, not their disadvantage. So we work with them almost like a, a digital performance coach and you know, giving them a mentor who's one or two steps ahead of them on the journey who they can connect with through our platform once a week. Now access to content from the, the very uh, experts in the industry who they can't get access to in their school, but they can get access to on a digital platform. And also building a peer-to-peer -peer network of talented individuals across the country as well. One of the really tricky things about social mobility is if you're a talented young person in Newcastle, you don't know talented young people living in Southampton. So yeah. you don't get that incredible network effect of being part of a thriving community where you're all inspiring each other onwards. And that's something that you no know, top universities and top private schools are so good at. They're not just incredible academic institutions in terms of the resources they create for students. They're great at building these networks where people almost think they're born to succeed and i want to bring that effect to people who weren't given opportunity on the plate growing up and we'll come back to that um digital coach aspects and that digital mentoring um bit but first what is talent in the 21st century you know you're part of a new vanguard of entrepreneurs you know social enterprises coming forward how has talent changed in the 21st century i think it's one of the most fundamental questions of any society you know, everyone takes it for granted that we live in a world where there is a clear link between background and opportunity and people often think that the status quo is impossible to change that you no know, people growing up in a small town in west yorkshire will never be able to compete with people going uh to you no know, top schools in west london but that doesn't have to be the case you no know, societies have changed radically throughout history and their ability to spread opportunity across 
the population. And if I even take my own case, that when I went to Oxford, it was roughly 50-50 state private school. Not a great ratio, right, given that 93% of people in the country attend state schools. If you go back 100 years, only 10% of students at Oxford University were from state schools. Someone like me growing up in West Yorkshire would have worked in a cotton mill or maybe gone down the pit in Sheffield. And that sounds almost crazy to say now, but that would have been my reality. So things have clearly changed, but we haven't gone far enough. In terms but not, of it's not even 100 link. years, right? 30 years ago, that would have been arguably the case as well, right? Like it has, there's, there's been quite a lot of movement in the last sort of three decades. So like when you look at the data, the social mobility has been stagnant in the UK for roughly the past three decades. There was a big increase in social mobility after the Second World War. We had a massive expansion in professional jobs and a big change in the industrial structure of the economy. But since that process stops, now we haven't thought deeply enough in this country about how we make sure people from all over the nation can succeed. And that's ultimately what Zero Gravity wants to be there to do, to truly level the playing field. And, and how you unlock that talent is a fundamental question of every country. Now, in the UK, if we could just get social mobility to the same level as our Western European counterparts, we could unlock £39 billion of GDP. That's enough to give every single household in the country £1,000. So now when talent wins, everyone wins. This isn't just about like creating a, a fairer, more equal system. This is about creating a more dynamic country that works for everyone. So that there's no bigger question for any society than how you break that link between background and opportunity. But do you think that we get the language around this hasn't been updated much? So using the phrase, for example, socially mobile, you said it yourself when you were 18, 19, you know, you were very socially mobile and that was what you were destined to do. But you would never have thought of yourself in that terminology, right? One of the big issues with social mobility is it's it's often been defined by academia. Like even the phrase mm. social mobility is an academic phrase, right? Like I never would have thought of myself as someone who was socially mobile when I was 17 and 18. And I think the language in this sector has contributed to the problem because if you're a young person, an organization comes into your school and they're like, no, you're super disadvantaged. Here's how big the barriers are to get you into top universities and careers. No, you're socially mobile. You're a whining participation student. That language is somewhat you know, demeaning. It doesn't make you feel good as an individual. It doesn't make you feel like you can defy the odds. So you know, one of the reasons we built the Zero Gravity brand as a kind of youth brand that emotionally resonates with students is we wanted to take away almost like the gravitational force of the brand around this issue, yeah. which is we don't want people to feel like they're defined by their backgrounds. We want people to feel like they're defined by their ambition and talent. And what... You talk there about part of the problem when it comes to talent is that we just immediately think of academic talent and so on. What are the other areas of talent that you think are prevalent? I think we take it for granted uh, that talent is academic talent. But if you look across human history, actually, people have defined talent in a number of ways. Like, to take the extreme example, if you go back to the caveman era, you know, talent was being the sort of fastest mm. uh, guy in the tribe, right, who could outrun the lion, and you, know, you go back to the aristocracies, and you know, talent was often your mastery of you know, religious texts or, yeah. or of the law. So ta the talent has evolved over time. And in the UK, we live in a society which is highly structured around academics. You now, what you get in your GCSEs at the age of 16, unfortunately, often defines your outcomes in life. And it defines what university you can go to, and often it defines what careers you can access as well. And in a country where the gap between the sort of have and have nots in the education sector is so big, that is a really, 
really big problem to have. So I, I think we have to do two things. I think one, we have to make sure that you know, access to you know, top education is uh, is available uh, to all. And if you are a talented person who goes to an underperforming state school, you're not massively disadvantaged compared to someone else. So you level the playing field in academia. But the second thing as well is we need to broaden our definition of talent beyond academics. Now, if you look at the future of work nowadays, you know, when you ask businesses you know, what they're looking for, often they're looking for you know, very particular behaviors that are often the opposite of what you want in a classroom. The education system teaches you to be an individual who just cares about your own individual performance and grades. But if you go into a modern workplace and just focus on what you're doing and optimizing your own work, you're going to run into barriers pretty quickly. You know, working in the modern workspace is about how you get results through other people. So like understanding talent is also behavioral. That people who've masters of the behaviors that you need to succeed in the world, I think is a broader definition. And I think it's something we need to adopt in the academic system, not just expect people to have those behaviors when they come into the world of work. What changes would you like to see to the education system brought in? I think when it comes to schools, I think the first thing to understand is that not everything has to happen in the classroom. When education policymakers think about how you solve social mobility, they default straight away to smaller class sizes, different ways of teaching, maybe running a summer school. But nowadays, young people spend more screen time on their phone than they do time in the classroom. So actually, the easiest way to connect and engage with young people is through their mobile phones, not necessarily what happens in the classroom. So it's a massive missing piece of education policy. Nobody's thinking about how government can facilitate digital engagement with students rather than just what happens in the school system. And that's why Zero Gravity has you know, created the product, ultimately, that students can plug into through their mobile phones. Now, we're not interested in trying to get people into university uh, through sessions in a, a classroom. Now, we're trying to create a platform that people can access anytime, anywhere, whether they're you know, on the couch at home or they're in their uh, bed at 10 o'clock at night. Now, if you're an ambitious person, you want to succeed, you don't have to be in a classroom to make that happen. And talk to us about that process then and, and how you a get those people but parents that are listening and students as well that want to engage explain how that process works i think in terms of inspiring people the best way to do that is not through academic research or policy pronouncements it's through real human stories the the vast majority of the first students who signed up to our platform did so through word of mouth because they heard about you know, one of their friends or someone in their family who used our platform and they got into a university that was just completely unfathomable, an institution they thought they would never be able to access. And I think utilizing, leveraging those stories is, is so, so important. So in all the brand work we do, if you go onto our website, you won't see copious amounts of academic research, but what you will see is copious amounts of real human stories. I think government being able to leverage the stories socially mobile individuals to really sort of change people's perceptions of what's possible is really, really important. And it's often something that government's not very good at doing as well. They're, they're far more comfortable at issuing white papers and thinking about big pictures of policies rather than thinking about how they can leverage some of the really inspiring individuals who are out there who are actually doing a better job of connecting with, uh, with real people. I think it is one of the greatest public policy challenges of the 21st century is how do you maximise more of the talent? And that's why I think it's so important you're doing what you're doing. Can you give us a couple of case studies of people that you're particularly proud of to have helped on the way? Well, since launching Zero Gravity, we've supported over 8,000 students from low, from low opportunity backgrounds into top universities. And each one of those 8,000, it's not just a data point, that is a real human being who has had a different 
uh, no trajectory in their life opened up to them. And when I think of some of the the most interesting stories, you know, we had a student um, a year ago uh, called Millie Ayers, uh, who was from a, a traveling showman background uh, in Aylesbury. You know, she dropped out of school at the age of 13 uh, to you know, run the, her sort of family fairgrounds. And she'd sat at GCSEs at home, almost failed. Our algorithm picked her up as somebody who was you know, from a background where she'd had to overcome huge obstacles. And when you looked at her academic performance in the context of her background, she was a clear overperformer. She wanted to study classics at university, a very strange the subject for someone from that background to want to study, right? You no, know, classics is often thought as one of the most, you know, private school dominated degrees, but she was really passionate about classics. So our platform matched her with a mentor who was studying at Cambridge University, who was a classics student. And together they, um, they worked to you know, elevate Millie's understanding of the course, help herself learn Latin. And she ended up getting an offer to Oxford University to study classics. And the first uh, traveling showman in the sort of uh, 21st century to get an offer from Oxford University. And that was an absolute game changer. Not just the 21st century, I imagine, right? Yeah, that was an absolute game changer, not just for her, but for uh, the community she was from. Like suddenly it became cool within that community to go to Oxford and Cambridge and universities that weren't even on the radar beforehand. And then the year after, Millie's sister, who also was on our platform, also got an offer to study at Oxbridge. And that just shows you how one person's success can completely change the perception of what's possible, not just within a family, but within a community. So when I think about what we're doing at Zero Gravity, like, yes, we're focusing on unlocking the potential of individuals, but actually by magnifying people's individual success and doing it at crazy scale, that is what creates a cultural change within organizations. And what is that moment or what are the types of moments where, because this show interviews entrepreneurs mainly, but is that person that thinks I'm going to do this and I'm going to have a crack at building this. And then, you know, from those seeds kind of, you know, mighty acorns can grow, etc. What is it that makes that difference for people? I think people's motivations are often quite complex. And that one of the dark truths behind social mobility is that I think a lot of the determination, determination, ambition of our members is often driven by childhood trauma as well, to be honest. Like I think back to my own experience growing up in West Yorkshire and I was in a single parent family and there was various parts of my childhood that were quite difficult. Uh, but I never saw myself as a, as a as a victim in that sort of situation though. Those experiences kind of motivated me and made me determined and, and probably gave me a bit of a chip on my shoulder yeah. as well. Maybe a little bit chippy and sometimes you need that yeah. to defy the odds. No, why not me? Um, so I, I think no, motivation is complex, but can often be driven by negative forces that then become a positive driving force for people. And that all goes back to the power of culture. It's helping people take control of their background and see it as the fundamental root of their success and the thing that drives them onwards rather than what holds you back. If you grow up in a small town and go to underperforming school, it can be very easy to become fatalistic about the system because it is set out not yeah. to work for people like you. But if you do embrace that mentality, if it's impossible to succeed, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And then that defines the culture for everyone else. So you know, part of the zero gravity mission isn't just about giving people the kind of substance-based support of mentorship, of great content and opportunities. There's also that cultural effect as well of people coming into a community where they think, actually, then my background is the determinant of my success. And I'm surrounded by people who also think that about themselves as well channeling the aggression point 
yeah, channeling the aggression. And this is true. You know, people understand this about sport, for instance, and you speak to lots of sports stars and they'll tell a very similar story to me. But the truth is uh, the same as social mobility as yeah. well. Totally. And what, when it comes to the digital coaching, so I'll tell, I'll tell the story of when I first met um, Joe or first came across you. I remember exactly where I was. I was sitting, um, studying at Stanford University and working on an idea at the beginning of 2020, which was basically how do you elevate mentoring to the next level? And how do you, a lot of mentoring ends up being the kind of same 80% of the conversation a lot of the time. And so how can you sort of change that? And how can you kind of like, democratize mentoring because so much of that is stuck in old school networks old university networks are oh, help you on the on the way and i was working on this idea and, and how do you do it and one of the problems that we were there was actually mentoring relationship traditional sort of 50 year old mentoring somebody in their 20s actually with the world moving quicker and quicker actually isn't much help at all and i remember logging on to the times and reading about your story and what you were doing and i was like gosh this guy's already doing it i don't need to i don't need to do it i can go start a podcast um <laughs> and but talk to us about that sort of because it is a new mentoring thing i would never have thought at university that i could really mentor anyone i just would not have thought of that as it but you're actually doing that where people are just being mentored one or two years ahead right and can therefore give the best advice yeah, you don't need to be Elon Musk or Richard Branson to be an incredible mentor and that anybody can be an incredible mentor to somebody who wants to be in their shoes. And mentoring when it works, works beautifully. Like loads of people can tell a story about the one, two, three defining mentors in their life who completely shaped their you know, academic or career trajectory. And the question is, how do you make mentoring work at scale? Like how do you create mentoring that works not just for 10 people, but for tens of thousands of people. So when I set out to build zero, uh, build zero gravity, you know, we did it in a tech first way, you know, building a platform that took the fundamental components of mentorship and tried to find a way to make them work you know, wherever you are in the country and however you want to access the platform. So think of something as simple as you know, how do you create a fantastic mentoring match? That's mm -hmm. something that people usually do just by chance or maybe through an Excel yeah. spreadsheet. Uh, but we sort of developed an algorithm that looked at all of the things that we know from our platform drive really engaged mentoring relationships. And we built something that then over time could learn, actually, how do you create that perfect mentoring uh, match? And, and the best thing about the algorithm is the more data we get on the platform, the better and more optimized it gets. And when it comes to mentoring sessions, then we try and build a mentoring habit within our members. Now, rather than just checking in with someone that once every six months, it's like, how can you build that consistent mm thread of mentorship where people are connecting you know, once every week or once every fortnight and how can you structure their journey for them as well the, the the students or undergrads that we have mentoring people into top unions on our platform these are really busy people they've got essays to write at university so we try and make their life as easy as possible and those structuring goals for them to help their mentee with they're giving them access to great content that can elevate their mentoring they're giving them a ai chatbot on our platform which they can use to augment the power of their mentoring sessions so it's how do you make mentoring as impactful as possible whilst taking away all the boring admin stuff yeah. that usually sits around it that no one wants to do totally and how have you found it as a young founder and a young founder doing something quite different in this sort of social enterprise space. I mean, it's often talked about, you know, tech for good, all this, you know, Generation Z or want a purpose, etc. All well true, perhaps. But what you are doing is very much in that social enterprise space. How have you found that? Yeah, it's been a it's been a really fun and interesting journey, but also a difficult one 
as well. Now, I'm still on a socially mobile journey myself, and I started Zero Gravity from my student bedroom back in the day with the last 200 quid, my student loan. And I didn't have friends and family funding mm. to start this organization. Unfortunately, I didn't have a rich uncle who I could tap for 50K to get going. If I did a whip round of my family and friends, probably would have raised maybe 50 quid in a packet of skips or something. So it, it was really difficult to get going with a lack of resources. And one of the dark truths about the tech startup sector in the UK is whilst it has grown, it's dominated by the sons and daughters of rich people based in London and the Southeast. Nine out of 10 founders are from the most affluent backgrounds. There's not many people from backgrounds like me running tech startups in the UK. So I ran into all those barriers of having no network, no friends and family funding, not really knowing what I was doing, in all honesty, at the beginning, having to learn everything by trial and error. I didn't have a bunch of professionals I could tap in my network who'd done this before. And, and the only way I was able to grow Zero Gravity was finding a way to almost find the cheat codes mm -hmm. how to get around the system. So for instance, the building a brand that resonated with young people but then got picked up in media coverage and allowed me to connect with people like you, Jimmy. Now, I, I never would have been in the same circles mm -hmm. as someone like you three years ago because we just lived very different lives. And it was by you know, building a brand people cared about and then media outlets wanted to shout about. But then that allowed me to build that network and have people come to me. And you know, once you build a network, it almost becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And the most difficult part is actually how do you get started yes. building a network? It's very easy to take a network from a medium-sized network to a large network. But how do you find that first 100 people who are willing to support you? That's a really big challenge that a lot of young people face. And, and if I gave, if I would give some advice to my younger self, and it relates back to our conversation we had earlier about the power of culture, the thing I didn't do straight away, but I found to be so important, was actually to take hold of my own identity and channel that into what I was doing. And I used to feel a little bit embarrassed about admitting I was from West Yorkshire, or I went to a state school, or I didn't have any funding. I, I thought I was a, an outsider and that people wouldn't take me seriously. And it was only through actually reconceptualizing that and actually saying, yeah, I am somebody who has defied the odds and I'm not someone from a background who's destined to succeed and I'm a bit chippy and I'm a bit rough around the edges. Actually putting that to the forefront of my identity and being honest about that actually opened a lot of doors for me because there was people out there who naturally wanted to support someone who you know, was un unconventional, a little bit unorthodox, and wasn't the standard sort of person slipping into their LinkedIn DMs every day. Um, and I do think, I remember the first conversation we had where I said, well, what can I do to help? And you said, well, basically mentor you. So that was my idea then of the, the mentoring scheme that I was doing at Stanford was I'll just help mentor the person that's helping do all the mentoring for the students. It worked very well. Um, although in our mentoring sessions, I do often wonder who's learning more. But um, what are those, the cheat codes in the power of networks, right? Like we're recording in front of your intern cohort this summer. And it is so important to get on schemes like that. And I think about the my strongest networks, basically people have become friends, right? Almost rather than networks. You know, are from a lot of internships and sort of first graduate jobs that I did. But what are the other cheat codes in terms of building that networks? Yeah, I think that the modern world is actually defined by networks when you think mm. about it. The people use social networks every day of the yeah. week to navigate their, their friendships and the way they broadcast themselves online. A lot of the apps people use day to day are based on networks. And I referenced Uber and Deliveroo earlier. They're both network-based products, right? The networks yeah. of cars and riders and the networks of uh, no delivery drivers 
And and the thing about networks is they're driven by network effects. And this is a slightly nerdy economicsy concept, but I think it's actually quite key to understanding how to cheat the system, which is like most goods and services when you buy them, they don't change in value based on how many other people consume them. Now, if you like orange juice, you go to the supermarket to buy a, a carton of orange juice. That orange juice is the same value to you whether 100 people buy it that day or 10 people buy it. But networks grow in value as more people use them. Now, no one would want to use Facebook if it only had a 1,000 people yeah. on it. But if it's got 2 billion users on it, everyone's got to be on Facebook. That is where everyone is. So the thing about the network you've got to think about is how do you create that network effect in your own life? So how would you get from having a network of zero people to 100 people? If you can accelerate that process and get through that first stage, everything will naturally fall into place. And the way you cheat that system, I think, is just by being relentless. You know, define your personal brand and how you want to represent yourself, and then just slip into as many people's DMs as possible. And like, take a chance. Like I realized quite quickly that people who I thought would be completely inaccessible and would never take a call with me actually if i sort of sent them a very thoughtful personalized message would take my call and that's another person that you add to the network I and mean, then think of how many people that could that person could introduce yourself to so thinking about how you go from zero to a hundred is far more important than how you go from a hundred to a thousand that will take care of itself but then meeting people like you jimmy was instrumental because you were one of those people who took me from zero to a hundred but i think as as well it's one of those things of where you've like take the shot right because most of them won't score right and most people won't respond but actually people more people will respond than you might think and all you need is one or two of those to land to get the flywheel kind of going right and it does you know and it's not as many people probably ask for help as you know you might might think but do you think like because one of the classic things is you know you talk about networks and like you know one of those first networks is going and getting a graduate job at you know, one of the big consultancies or whatever. Did that ever appeal? I did think about going down that path. And then when I was at Oxford, one of the things that struck me is I kind of assumed for some reason that everyone there would be massively entrepreneurial and would want to you know, start their own business. Mm. But actually, everyone wanted to go into investment banking, become a consultant, be a lawyer. And that was sort of set up as what success looked like for me. And I remember in my second year of university, I sort of had a bit of a panic because all my friends were doing internships. I thought, gosh, I've got to do one of these yeah, yeah. as well. And I almost ended up becoming a lawyer. Um, but I, I turned that career down because like, when I reflected on what I was passionate about and my kind of mission in life, I wanted to do something to change the game for people like me. And I think I, I could have done that in a law firm. I think by being somebody in a law firm from a socially mobile background, who kind of you know, climbs the hierarchy, becomes a partner, and then changes the culture in the firm, you know, the way they identify talent, you know, the way they progress people. That is powerful from a social mobility point of view. But I thought I could have more impact by building technology to work with tens of thousands of people because that's what I kind of knew about and that's the vision that I, I had. So that's why I went down that route. But it was a, it was a difficult decision to make because I had no job offers that would have given me a really high income at a young age and when i turned those offers down my friends and family thought i was absolutely nuts and one of the difficult things about entrepreneurship in the uk is that people only celebrate entrepreneurs once they've got some external signs of success mm. no nowadays and now that zero gravity has you know, raised funding from social impact investors and we're in the press and we've got great social impact now everyone 
it celebrates the, the entrepreneurial decision I made. But when I first made that decision when I was 21, the people weren't supportive. Even yeah. my friends and family thought I was a bit nuts and a bit crazy. And and that's one of the difficult things about being an entrepreneur in the UK, the failure and taking that unorthodox first step is, is not a celebrated thing in this country. And I think it should be. Totally. We should do more about that. How is corporate recruitment changing? Because every business, I mean, it's almost a bit sort of like a cliche on the website will say, you know, our biggest asset is our people or, you know, our talent differentiators and so on. And you think, of course it is, because, you know, a company, when you think of what a company means, like it means the company of others, right? How are you noticing corporate recruitment changing? I think every single big corporate employer is in a space race for talent nowadays. They were in a really difficult period macroeconomically in the West, the sort of period of you no know, great economic growth and you no know, the rising tide that lifts all boats is is over. Now all markets are becoming more competitive. You no know, growth is more difficult to get. So every single big employer is actually having to think deeply about the way they recruit talent because the future of their business is essentially built on being more competitive and more productive than their competitors in the market. And one thing I've really seen change since I started Zero Gravity is employers used to see social mobility as a CSR charity issue. Now, how do we do our bit for the community, you know, be a good employer, you know, impress our clients? And it was quite tokenistic, in all honesty, a bit of a HR box ticking exercise, and there was no impetus for real change. But that has completely transformed over the past five years. Now, a lot of the employees we work with have really strong data now showing that the most productive, high-performance people in their workforce are the people who they employed from low-income, working-class backgrounds. So they've all now got a commercial imperative to know to hire more people from the outside London and the southeast and a small subset of schools because it's good for their bottom line, not just good for their CSR reports. And some people might look at that cynically and think, and the corporates are only doing that this now because it's good for business. But I actually see that in a positive sense because I actually think it creates a real impetus to now create change in this issue. In the same way that climate change and sustainability was a tokenistic issue 30 years ago, but now is a growth driver for big corporates, that's now happening when it comes to social mobility. And all of them are radically transforming their recruitment processes. One big change which has happened in the last 10 years is all the big graduate employers are now pipelining talent from the age of 18. The way the system used to work is now you'd go to university, complete your degree, and then you'd think about getting a job, right? And you'd do some interviews and maybe you'd get a grad scheme. Nowadays, if you want to get one of the elite jobs, you've got to get that spring week in your first year of university. If you get the spring week, then you get the internship. And if you get the internship, then you get the job. What's a spring week? So spring week is like a, a one-week internship. Now, a lot of right. uh, employers do them. Not all the investment banks run these spring weeks. A lot of law firms do as well. And, and often if they, they recruit their graduates almost exclusively from the internships yeah. that they run because the internship is a, is a great way for them to actually audit talent. I think a lot of employers have lost faith in the academic system as a good arbiter of merits. Now they're increasingly using internships as their way to judge talent. And that's good in the sense that it gives people a way to impress employers. But the, the truth is the way the system currently works is that not many people from low opportunity backgrounds know that this is the way the system works. So they don't get on the kind of career train when they're 18 years old, 
by the time they're 21 years old and applying for these jobs, the game's already up. They can't get them because they don't have the prerequisite work experience I to get a job. It's one of the biggest paradoxes of the modern world, right? In a way, it's never been easier to make it because of all the technology and information that's out there. But actually, you need to almost be making it earlier than you've ever made it before because otherwise the train's gone, right? And I think that's... A- a real um, challenge for our society. Um, we'll be recording this and publishing it when uh, GCSE A-level results are coming out. If people haven't quite made the A-level grades that they haven't, what would your advice be? The traditional response is to go into clearing and look what's out there on the day. And that is important if you are really passionate about going to university. I think the other thing to know is that the university is not the only option. No, the apprenticeship sector has massively exploded over the past 10 years with the apprenticeship Mm. uh, levy. And a lot of corporates now are hiring almost as many professional apprentices as they are graduates. And that's been a massive change. So university doesn't have to be the only route into an elite graduate career. And and the other thing I would also suggest as well, and I'm a bit biased, is like entrepreneurship, it can be a route forward. It is a risky route. The the chances are you will fail. And it is very difficult to defy the odds. But as a young person, even if you are someone from a low-income background, there's no better time in your life to take a risk and try and be entrepreneurial because often at the age of 18, that is the moment in your life where you've got the minimum amount of responsibility. It's very difficult to start a business when you're you're married and you've got a family because you've got people who are directly dependent on you. And and some young people do have people who are directly dependent on them and that Mm. can make it more difficult. But as a young person, you're in the best point in your life often to take a risk. So if you're an 18-year-old not going to university, why not spend your summer thinking about potentially starting a business? Agreed on that. How have you found recruitment? Partly as a young founder, but also you're trying to do things very differently here. Well, we're recording this episode live in a room full of zero gravity <laughs> team members. So uh, I, I'll say the recruitment's been brilliant. We've got fantastic people <laughs> not working mistake, in the organizations. Um, I think, especially as a startup, like recruitment's really difficult because you're a brand that often people don't know about and you're, you're kind of a risk as well, because you're not a proven business. So to work for a startup, you've got to be slightly crazy. In all honesty, you've got to have quite a big risk tolerance. Um, but I think getting recruitment right is so important because if you're a small business trying to defy the odds, you can only do that if you've got the very best people who are no motivated uh, to make your mission a reality and no get through that hard slog of turning something from nothing into something. And when I sort of set out to like do recruitment, I wanted to do things differently because I'd never actually had a corporate job before. Yeah. I didn't really have a blueprint to follow. So I kind of set out to do things in my own way. And one of the big things I put a massive uh, focus on was like mission and values. Now, people can learn skills over time, but if people aren't fundamentally motivated by the mission behind your company and what you're building, and they don't have the values that make those people incredible people to work with day in, day out, it's very difficult to ever teach people the skills in those situations. So we, we really put a massive focus on mission and values, and every single person in the Zero Gravity team really lives and breathes you know, what we do. Now, many of them are from socially mobile backgrounds themselves, have had to overcome insurmountable odds to get to where they are today. And even those who, who aren't from those backgrounds often have a kind of personal experience or affinity with the mission and, and that's so important because growing a startup is hard and there are dark days sometimes though things go wrong you take risks and they don't quite pay off and if you don't have that mission that underpins it it's really difficult to stay afloat is that something that you look for then is the sort of the challenges 
that have grown up. I mean, you talked about trauma earlier. Like, is that something that you seek out? Yeah, like I, we, we have our company values at Zero Gravity, and, and one of them is called Stand Up Straight, which is all about no-nonsense, direct communication, no, no beating around the bush. You say it as it is, and as a kind of northerner, that was a value that I always found uh, no, quite powerful in my own life. And I, I think in a startup, it's so important because you're building something that has never been done before, and you can't be an ostrich with your head in the sand. You have to surface problems and constantly try and evolve your approach, and you can't believe your own delusions about how great your company is so having people who are willing to sort of say it as they see it and no matter what position you are in the company they're willing to sort of give constructive criticism and hold people to a high standard i mean that's exactly what you need in a startup the last thing you want is somebody who's too political or too diplomatic you know leave that to the corporates for startups you want people who are direct and straight the it is one of the biggest skills that i felt i learned at downing street was the ability to communicate directly because you didn't often have a lot of time with the prime minister you know you didn't really sort of waste any words and it was on reflection one of the things that i thought that i had picked up most was just that ability to be concise to the point now where with my team i have to sometimes go back a little bit and think like we can actually talk about the weekend and what people got up to and that is quite important but we didn't really do that with the pm funnily enough on a monday morning um so I'm going to come to questions soon because I know there's some in the audience. Uh, but the last one I wanted to ask you was if you could um, pass the mic to another entrepreneur in the kind of social enterprise space that we should get on the show, who should we get on? Well, I know one entrepreneur who really helped me, he's already been on your show, was Alex Stephanie. Oh, uh, yeah. Beam. No, back in the early days, and he was a big inspiration to me because he was a startup founder and working in a space solving a social problem of homelessness that people have traditionally seen as a, a government or charity issue. And he created the, the innovative tech startup model to solve yeah. that problem. So I was inspired by him as someone who was in that tech for good movement in a different space to me. And he was also someone who you know, mentored me in the very, very early stages and giving me advice on how to grow a company. I think in, in terms of people doing really interesting things out there, we've actually got so many zero gravity students yeah. on our platform who are now starting their own businesses now one of the things that is is so good about running a startup is you get loads of people and they message you on linkedin who've you know, been inspired by your own journey who are now starting their own thing so i, I have calls you no know, maybe two or three a week with young founders you no know, building really really you know, cool businesses you no know, from ai to ed tech to health tech so i i think there's this new movement in the uk where with with more stories like mine of socially mobile founders being elevated the more people think they can yeah. do it now and um, and having more entrepreneurs from some normal backgrounds, I think will actually lead to a lot of innovation because often the tech startup sector operates in a silo and that's a direct result of those founders all being from the same backgrounds. Is there a name though? To give you a name, I'm going to have to, have to choose. He's a politician. Not, not, sorry. You can give us a couple. I have to choose between uh, some of our incredible uh, members. Um, I, think, I think one of our members who like really stood out uh, recently is we, we had a, a member called Fiona Zaka who was she actually interviewed on Kosovo National TV uh, a week ago and um, she's someone who's really interested in the refugee movement internationally her parents fled the genocide in Kosovo to come to the UK so then she's been thinking really deeply about uh, is there a better solution you know solving the refugee problem in the UK it's uh, become a little bit of a political football mm. and a toxic issue and I think in the same way that I thought about social mobility and people like Alex Stephanie have thought about homelessness, then maybe there's also a tech startup solution to how you make the refugee journey 
easier for people that come into the UK for the very first time. Having spent a bit of time in Kosovo, it is um, it is amazing some of the stories, and yeah, there's lots of there's lots of people actually called Tony Blair, and I've got Tony Blair as middle names. It's quite sort of like surprising when you go there, but it's it is a um, yeah, it's definitely well. That sounds a really interesting uh, episode, so we'll get that on. So I know there's a few questions from the floor, so. With mics going round. I may repeat it as well, depending on how the audio sort of works. Who do we want to go to first? Do you want to go first? Hi, Joe. So my question is, how does zero gravity differ? Because a lot of people that are supporting social mobility will be charities. So obviously, zero gravity is a social enterprise. How does that differ? What advantages does that have? Sure. So I, I think the charity approach to social mobility rests on a false assumption, which is that social mobility is a CSR issue rather than an economic one. And we, we spoke a little bit, bit about that earlier. And like how we differ is, no, we want to build a platform that works at scale in terms of getting people into elite institutions. And ultimately, there's a business model behind that because every employer and university has a vested interest in identifying this talent and they're spending you know, hundreds of millions of pounds every single year on trying to recruit people from the low opportunity backgrounds, but currently often really struggling to get any results. So I see this as a platform which is not just about empowering people's potential as individuals, but actually providing a better business solution for UK PLC to identify the best talent. And I think the great thing about having a business model behind what you're doing is you no, know, you're not reliant on donors in the long term. You can create a model that's sustainable. And also one which is scalable as well, because you can invest you know, the money that you generate as a business in building things like technology and brands, which are really difficult to make a, a charity donation case for. No, no donor wants to donate to building a high-risk tech platform, right? That might take 12 months to come to fruition. People want instant impact. And I think that is actually a structural weakness right at the heart of the nonprofit sector that the models of non-profits often are about money going directly to the front line and there's no money there to actually invest in the infrastructure that allows you to scale your impact in the long term. So that's how we're trying to create a different model with zero gravity. Completely. More questions. Hi, Joe. Um, so my question is, you talked a lot about your experience of being a young entrepreneur with very little resources. How, what advice would you give to someone in a very similar situation? A young entrepreneur with very little resources he wants to start a business and do social good. Yeah, it's a really you know, good question. What advice would I give to my younger self and other people that are doing this for the very first time? The reality is that you have to try and find a way to defy the odds. And one big mistake I think a lot of young people make is they try and solve the world or change the world overnight. And the reality of actually going a startup is that it doesn't work like that. I think people have these like ill-conceived notions of like they've watched a film like The Social Network where they see Mark Zuckerberg in his Harvard dorm room tapping away on his keyboard. And then two weeks later, Facebook's taken over the universe. But actually, that's not how most startups grow. Even Facebook didn't grow like that. The real story of Facebook is they hopped from college campus to college campus in the US before it became a global platform. So it takes time for things to come together. You're not going to be an overnight success story. And, and the way you actually build something that can scale over time is by being relentlessly focused on achieving a few key things that have a clear strategy and a clear set of milestones you want to achieve to get going. So when I think of my own journey, the first thing I did is build the brand. I thought if people 
want to work with Zero Gravity rather than a different organization, we have to build that brand that resonates with young people. And then once I built the brand, I was happy with it. Then we built the platform. It was a very basic platform, just did the basics of identifying talent and connecting people with mentors. There was no bells and whistles, and I'd be a bit embarrassed about it if anyone used it today, but it was enough to get going. Now, then once we'd done that, then we started to layer on more features and more features and respond to user feedback and make the platform better. So the Zero Gravity didn't come together overnight. It took four years to get to this point, and we're still a startup to this day. So be absolutely laser focused on achieving a few set things. Don't try and build a mega corporation overnight because what you'll find is you can only build that in your own mind. You can't build it in reality. Thank you. Hi, Joe. So you touched upon identity and as someone that's experiencing upward social mobility, um, do you experience any conflicts in identity or perhaps even guilt? And if so, how do you manage this and like deal with this? Yeah, it's a really good question. I I think one of the big issues of social mobility is you do run into a bit of an identity crisis. I, I saw this firsthand when I got my offer to study at Oxford University. And I was excited about going to such an elite, prestigious institution. I, know, I knew it was going to be a game changer in my own life. But I also felt a degree of imposter syndrome. And I was going into an institution that wasn't full of people like me. Now, would people like get me as an individual? Like, would I be made fun of because I was a northerner? Now, I also got like a, a big bursary from Oxford as well. I couldn't necessarily afford to study there without institutional support. And I was a little bit kind of you know, embarrassed about that. Um, but at the same time, like once I actually got to Oxford, I became too posh to go back home. And then my friends from West Yorkshire, they started making fun of me, losing my accent. Then my interests changed a little bit. So I kind of got trapped between imposter syndrome on the one side and then a kind of social mobility guilt on the other, where my identity was in constant flux. And it, it took me a long time to sort of solve that problem in my own mind. I was always wrestling with my own identity. And it's it's only sort of like today now that I've kind of got a better solution to that issue, which is, yeah, I still got a lot of my Northern values and chippiness. My accent might not quite be there anymore, but I can't get that back, unfortunately. And I, I can hopefully, you know, frequent uh, a dinner with you no know, billionaire investors, but also go and watch my team Hull City at the weekend and throw beers around in the concourse. Well, I also think it's one of those things where it just does take time to figure out. Uh, this is a small, narrow example that I'll give, but um, you talk about identity. You know, one of your biggest identities is, is your name. And through, I was through school, university, always referred to as Jimmy. But when I was like in the corporate world, I thought I should go by James initially when I was starting because that was more of a kind of professional name. Actually, only did I realize a few years later that actually going by Jimmy was better because it was almost more unique and there weren't really any other Jimmys in Westminster at the at the time. Joe, thanks so much for coming on Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. Been a real privilege. Thanks for having me on, Jimmy. Thanks for listening to Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. We've come a long way since our first episode when I started recording this on my own in my daughter's nap times. We are now a team that not only pulls together a podcast, but also creates content on multiple channels, whether that is our Substack, looking at the latest trends in business, entrepreneurship, and the future of work, or some of our more lighthearted takes on TikTok. And of course, our best moments are on YouTube. To find all our socials and best content links, click on the links in the show notes below.